Many of the stories in this series contain difficult subjects and traumatic events. Listener discretion advised. So next up is Kirsty. And again, Kirsty's someone that I've actually known for a very long time. Um, it's always interesting, I think, to get to know somebody that you think you know well on a different level. Um, those of you who know Kirsty like I do will know she is very, very funny. And her natural sort of way of being is, is to fill the space with humour and very often to be a little self-deprecating along the way. And it was just a real change of how we interacted and how we talked to and with each other to hear her tell a, a story that is actually not quite so outrageously funny and really shows her thoughtful, tender side, which I've always known is there, but she tends to keep shielded quite closely. So this is Kirsty's story. So, when I first sat down to write my story, I really began to create a potted history. I was trying to recreate my own stand-up comedy act, and I realised I was trying to tell you jokes, and I wasn't really giving you a pivotal moment in my life. For context, I kind of see myself as somewhat of a social grey area. I'm not really a black and white type of person. I like the middle ground. I like it. I like a good chat. And I like to find an area of common ground. I was born into a, a blended family. I'm the only biological child to my parents. I'm the fifth of six children. My younger sister was adopted. And by the time I was 14 years old, I think I'd moved towns three times. But I've moved house and schools five times. And I think about 14 times um, in terms of addresses. So I've always felt somewhat like of an interloper, someone that doesn't always quite fit in, someone that has to change shape quite a lot. And being a grey area, I'm also a bit of a mimic. I have ADHD and I have that thing where I can mimic an accent. That's so I like to speak like this and then I have to talk like that and then I went right northern and now I'm in Portsmouth. Okay? <laughs> so at 14 years old, I arrived here in Pompey. So my story begins... On the morning of February the 18th, it was a Sunday, 2007. I'm 30 years old and I wake up in my younger sister's childhood bedroom looking at some Take That posters. And whilst I'm deeply gracious for my folks giving me somewhere to live, having left a somewhat toxic, tumultuous marriage actually on my 30th birthday, following a fairly ugly, violent row. I get up, I do some yoga in the back garden. I do the Shivananda program. It takes exactly 30 minutes. I know it inside out. And I am aware it's a bit of a chill in the air. I'm feeling a little bit empty. Not lonely. I've kind of got to the point in my life where I didn't feel quite so broken and I start prepping breakfast for my parents and I'm expecting visitors that day and I know that I'm going to be doing the roast 
I'm peeling potatoes. It's not even gone midday. My sister's going to come around with her children. I've got an aunt and uncle visiting. I'm laying the table. I'm pootling around. I'm a little bored, if I'm honest. A bit later on that afternoon, my phone rings. I'm excited to hear my phone ringing, not going to lie. But it's my friend Abby. Now, my friend Abby does not speak on the phone. She doesn't answer the phone. She'll write to you. She'll text you. She'll email you. She'll send you a carrier pigeon with a handwritten note. But she will not talk on the phone. She just doesn't know. She's got a spicy brain. She doesn't like it. So to see her name coming up, it's curious, a little bit alarmed, answered, you right, love? A little voice comes over. What are you doing, Kirst? So, like, oh, not much, just peeling some potatoes, getting ready for dinner. She says, uh, okay, well, kids are at the dad's. I've been drinking since breakfast, and can you come over? I'm on my own. Yes, I said. Cry for help, give me something to do, sense of purpose, and I felt needed. So I grabbed my big purple scarf, which matches my beautifully recently dyed blue-black cropped pixie hairdo. I jump in my banged-up old Renault and I leave the sunny hills of Paulsgrove and head down to Eastney. When I arrive, it's early evening by this point, and Abby has already ordered us a massive Chinese takeaway. And we sit down on her kitchen floor eating straight out of those aluminium oblong tubs with chopsticks. And I remember the scallops and the udon noodles and the exact, that sweet sea flavour that you get in a good Chinese fishy dish. And we're sat and I, the cold beige tile floored. And it was, at that moment I kind of said, oh, do you know what we should do? We should, we should probably just go out and look for something to do. Let's see what's happening. Let's get out. We were chatting and... Abby was in a much better state, and we headed down to the other end of Rue d'Albert, Albert Road, for those of you that are familiar. We find ourselves in a little Johnny Russell, we take up a table, and we have some vodka and Diet Cokes, or as Abby likes to call them, our wonky woos. We have several. And before you know it, it's the end of the night. And we're being kicked out, I've only just bought around. So I come up with the idea that what we'll do is we'll nick the glasses with the drinks in them, we'll smuggle them out underneath that big purple scarf. And we go outside, and this time uh, we finish our drinks sat on the tarmac rather than sitting on her kitchen floor. And there's a lady, she says hello to me. She's very nice, she smiles, and she makes eye contact. And I'm not really kind of sure if she's kind of saying hello or if she's just kind of being friendly. And in that sort of pub and space, it's not really for me to work that out. And I wasn't really looking, to be honest. I certainly wasn't on the pool. It was Sunday night and I was out with my mate Abs. Coming back towards us is this very tall man. He's wearing a black beanie hat and he looks over and he says, I do hope you're going to be responsible with those glasses. And I cheekily said something along the lines of, yeah, we'll probably recycle them or take them home. And I thought, oh, he's cute. That's exactly the sort of stupid shit I'd say to somebody. We bimble on down in the same direction towards the quickie mart. He goes into the shop and I'm trying to push cash into someone that's homeless his hand and we are quite tipsy. The man comes out and he's got his bottle of milk. Abby says she knows him, that he actually is the manager of The Edge of the Wedge and she sometimes sings there. She's a, a fantastic songbird and she um, does acoustic nights. 
We all start chatting. She says she likes him. So that gives me a level of like, oh, yeah, he's quite funny. And he makes me laugh pretty much all the way that we kind of follow him home. His house is kind of en route. <laughs> we get outside his house, which is uh, number 49. I can't quite remember if Abby invites us in, but I do remember him saying, you're coming in then. So we did. We get inside. We go and sit down in the back part of the house, this sort of kitchen diner area. He pulls out this game. It's, um, I don't know if any of you remember. It's Simon Says. Only this one is one of those ones where you close an electrical circuit, and if you get it wrong, the pattern in the lights and the sounds, it electrocutes you. Now, remember how drunk I am at this point. The more mistakes I made, the funnier he found it, the more entertaining I found it because I was entertaining him. And I just found myself, in a very relaxed way, enjoying myself. My friend, Abby, she nips off to the loo. I don't really notice at this point. We're chatting away, having the time of my life, you know, just having a really pleasant evening. And I get a message on my phone. And it's from Abby. She says, I've got your purple scarf. Have a great night, love. And I'm like, oh, because I'm always Abby's third wheel. Abby's beautiful, by the way. I'm always her third wheel. So I tell this man, I think he's cute. He grabs my face and he kisses me. We go upstairs. Spend the night. The following day, we're quite busy. I never did get a cup of tea, by the way, and I know he had the milk. <laughs> and I live there now. It's my marital home. 49's my address. And he's over Thank you, that's my story. And that was Kirsty's story. What I um, remember really loving about watching Kirsty on stage is the level of comfortability that she felt just kind of hoiking up in the armchair, feeling kind of, you know, amassed in its kind of comfiness. It was comfy, stop mm. that. Maybe disgustingly hideous to look at, but it was comfortable. Um, and just the way that she sat there with her tea, just kind of like looking as if it really was her living room. And I just love that level of intimacy that she was able just to kind of give to the audience while she was doing it. I think as well, one of the really interesting parts from the behind the scenes is that that story wasn't Kirsty's story till I think Two day, a day or two before the show. Yeah, I, w I won't lie. There, were, there was quite a lot of chopping and changing. Kirsty won't mind me saying that um, the process was very similar to a lot of our conversations over cups of tea elsewhere, which is chaos. Uh, there's always a tangent. If Kirsty's not on one, I am. Uh, but we got there, and I really feel that those tangents were worthwhile because I think they got us somewhere really beautiful. And what I loved was that amongst all those tangents, I know a lot of people were listening and there's a certain part in that story where her, uh, her and her friend are sat on Albert Road and you sort of think this might be going down a really dark route and then for it to blossom into a love story, I just thought was typical of the way our conversations go, winding all over the place, what's going to come next, are we going to get to the point? And we did and it was gorgeous. Yeah. 